0: Our lead pastor, Sean Richmond, is on sabbatical, so he's about a month deep into that, and I actually have the honor of sharing God's Word with you today, and I actually get three weeks with you in a row, something I've never had before. So if there's like two people here next week, I'll know, I'll know how things went today. But it's really good to see you all. I'm excited to share the Word of God with you um, this morning, as always. So some of you may have heard of this fellow. His name is uh, Randy Pausch. I think I'm pronouncing his last name right. And he was a professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon University. And he became famous towards the end of his life. He was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. And in 2007, he gave this lecture that he called The Last Lecture which became a famous YouTube sensation and ultimately led to a best-selling book of the same name. And in it, among many other pieces of advice, he wrote this. He said, Do not tell people how to live their lives. Just tell them stories. And they will figure out how those stories apply to them. Now, whether he knew it or not, Posh was actually very close to describing how biblical stories were meant to work. I mean, the most common form of literature in the Bible is narrative writing, often called historical narrative. Uh, This type of writing makes up about 40% of the Old Testament, and much of the New Testament as well. Uh, Two of my favorite Bible scholars define narrative history as purposeful stories Retelling the historical events of the past that are intended to give meaning and direction for a given people in the present. In other words, narrative history isn't merely history, although it's at least that. It's history retold to make a point. Another scholar, Haddon Robinson, remarks that the purpose of Bible stories is not to say you must and you should. The purpose is to give insight into how men and women relate to the eternal God and how God relates to them. And so over these next three weeks, we're going to look at the first three or four years of Elijah's public ministry, this great prophet in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah. And to do this, we're going to read several stories, true stories from history, and learn how God relates to us and how we relate to him. And we're going to pick up his story in the book of 1 Kings. Now, 1 Kings begins with easily one of the most prosperous times for the nation of Israel. Right? These are truly the, the, the golden years for this nation. David, who's Israel's greatest, most faithful king, is towards the end of his life. And he's going to pass the torch to his son Solomon. And by God's gift, Solomon becomes one of the wisest of Israel's kings, and the nation enjoys prosperity like it's never known before. 1 Kings 4.20 tells of how numerous the people were, and they ate, they drank, and they were happy. 1 Kings 10.27 notes that Solomon made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. Solomon builds this huge and beautiful temple, and God's presence comes and dwells within. God is dwelling among his people. And Solomon also builds this huge palace. And people from all over the world come to seek him in his wisdom. But as he ages, Solomon starts to turn from God. And he marries women from other nations who ultimately turn his heart away from the one true God. And as a result, after Solomon's death, God tears away ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. Ten of them are torn away from Solomon's son. And God gives these, these tribes to Solomon's rival, Jeroboam. And so Israel now is a divided nation. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Judah in the south and Israel, or Ephraim, in the north. And Jeroboam, the king of the north. In an effort to maintain control over this kingdom, he creates his own cult of worship to rival that of the southern kingdom. See, he doesn't want the people in the north turning back to the king of the south. So he makes temples in Dan and Bethel. He makes up idols for worship. He appoints his own priests who aren't Levites, a big no-no. And he invents his own holy days in the process. And all of this that Jeroboam does is direct disobedience to numerous commands in the covenant that God made with Israel. And remember that that during this time, too, kings, King Jeroboam, he had so much power, so much authority, so much influence and control, that as the king went, so went the nation. And this really begins Israel's great plunge into idolatry and to forsaking God. Now, the technical term for this, for, for turning away from God to other gods, is apostasy. So say, say it that with me, apostasy. Apostasy, right. I tried, trust, I tried so hard. I wanted to avoid using a fancy technical word this morning to describe this. But it's really the, the best way to describe what's happening with Israel and its kings. They are turning away from and abandoning God, their apostates, forsaking the God who rescued them from Egypt, who made them into a nation and made a covenant with them. And so dark times are ahead for Israel. And as we read on, each king after Jeroboam gets progressively worse until we reach the lowest of the low, which is where we're going to start today. So turn with me, please, to 1 Kings. We're going to start in chapter 16. 1 Kings 16, and this is a long text. We're going to be reading long texts this, these next few weeks. but 1 Kings 16, we're going to start in verse 29. It will be on the screen as well. 1 Kings 16, 29. Listen carefully with me to what God's word says. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Eberam, and he set up its gates at the cost of his younger son, Zegu, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath in the region of Sidon. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God. Have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. In this first piece of text that we read here, that we started in chapter 16, we see the rise of great evil in Israel. And the leader of this great wave of apostasy is King Ahab. Twice we're told that Ahab did more evil than all before him. He commits the sins of Jeroboam. The text says that these sins were trivial to him. Literally, it was a light thing for him to do these. He continues in this sin of setting up other idols for people to worship outside of Jerusalem in direct defiance to God's repeated commands. And he marries Jezebel, the daughter of a Sidonian king, also against God's commands, by the way. And we soon learn that Jezebel is zealous for her god, which is Baal. And she exerts great influence over her husband. Eventually, she tries to have all of God's prophets killed. Eventually, she tries to kill Elijah himself. It says that Ahab worships Baal in direct defiance to the first and second commandments. He built a temple and an altar for Baal. He makes an Asherah pole, which honors one of Baal's partners, this fertility goddess. And finally, the text closes noting that in Ahab's time, Heel rebuilt Jericho. In other words, the times are so evil under Ahab that even Jericho, the city cursed by Joshua, the first city destroyed by the Israelites as they came to God's promised land, even Jericho is rebuilt. And he loses his own sons in the process, which fulfills a prophecy that Joshua spoke in Joshua 6, 26. So things have gone horribly wrong for Israel. Ahab's apostasy is the worst of the worst, and his wife is worse still. And if we had time, we could just cite command after command and warning after warning here that's being broken in this little introduction that we have. So what does God do about How does God respond? Well, at the beginning of chapter 17, we abruptly meet a man named Elijah. Now, as you may have guessed by the title of this series, Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God, or my God is Yahweh. Eli just means my God in Hebrew. And the Jah, or the Yah, is shorthand for Yahweh. It's the first part of And this is the name that God revealed of himself to Moses back in Exodus. I wrote all the consonants here with no vowels just to respect the original Hebrew, which didn't yet denote vowels when when this was written. And every time you see the word LORD in all caps in your Bible, that's the word that's being translated, Yahweh. This is how God chose to reveal himself with this name that's very closely related to the Hebrew verb to be, hence I am. His name and his identity is wrapped up in perfect being. He's the perfect one who is. I am. And most of the time, when you see a name that ends with an "ah" of some kind, Yahweh is the one that it's referring to. Abijah, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah. These are all Yahwehs at the end of their name. They would never. They would never write the whole name out. It was so venerated and respected. They just took the first half. Of So as soon as we see that name in this text, we know that conflict is brewing. Because with Ahab, we just met a man whose God is clearly not Yahweh. And here we meet a man whose name is Yahweh is my God. And in the text that follows, we see three scenes unfold that definitively show how Elijah lives up to his name. In the first scene, we see Elijah confront Ahab. As the Lord, as Yahweh, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. You see the confrontation already? As Yahweh lives, says Elijah, not Baal, whom I serve, me, Elijah, Yahweh is my God, I serve him. There will be neither dew nor rain. This is a direct affront to Baal. Baal was a storm god who was thought to provide rain. And as an agrarian society, Israel depended on rain for life more than than anything else, really. So you can see why worshiping Baal was such a temptation, such a snare to them. I mean, in their minds, Baal was the key to their survival and prosperity, much like money might be for us today. So Elijah confronts this Baal worshiper. And if you want to get a sense, just a picture of how bold Elijah is here. Imagine confronting the king of Saudi Arabia and telling him that as surely as Jesus Christ is Lord, there won't be any oil from the ground until I say so. Right? In other words, your whole economy, your whole basis for power and authority is gone. And by the way, your God is not the true God. So just like today, I mean, if the economy went south or times got tough, the king took the blame. I mean, today we'll we'll blame the president or the government, something like that, right? But Israel would blame the king. I mean, he was ultimately responsible for the welfare of the nation in the people's eyes. And so immediately after this bold confrontation, God commands Elijah to go into the wilderness. And he promises him that he'll drink from the brook and he'll get food from the ravens. So, is Yahweh Elijah's God? Of course, he obeys. And we see straight away that God is faithful to him. Elijah goes to the ravine. The ravens provide food for him, and he drinks from the brook. Point for point, Elijah is faithful to God, and point for point, God is faithful to his promises. We might take just a, a second here to note that this isn't exactly a sweet gig for Elijah, is it? He's in the wilderness. He's away from the protection of the towns and cities. He's drinking from a brook like an animal and getting food scraps from scavenger birds. He sacrifices tremendously of his own comfort for the sake of obeying the God he serves. We see God's faithfulness on display again in verse 7 as the brook dries up. Why? Because there's no rain in the land, just like he said. And this pattern of Elijah's faithfulness and God's faithfulness continues into the next scene. Starting in verse 8, the Lord commands Elijah to go to Zarephath, promising that a widow will provide food for him there. Is Yahweh Elijah's God? Of course. Does God keep his promises? Of course. Elijah goes to Zarephath. He meets a widow. There's miraculous provision for Elijah, the widow, and her son throughout the drought. All this happens, verse 16 says, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Elijah is living up to his name. And we notice a few other things here. First, Elijah is in Zarephath. He's outside of Israel. Zarephath is in Sidon. The same Sidon ruled by the king whose name is Ethbal, which means Baal is alive. This king is the father of Queen Jezebel, who married Ahab. So even here, we see another answer to Ahab's worship of Baal. Even in his home turf, Baal is not God. He's not alive. And even outside of Israel, Yahweh is God. And second, we see a picture of how severe the drought is. I mean, this widow is clearly at the end of her provision. And we essentially find her getting ready to eat what she thinks is going to be her last meal before starving to death. Now, if there's any doubt left, the final scene offers the last bit of affirmation that Yahweh is God and Elijah is his servant. Picking up in verse 17, the widow's son becomes ill and dies. And to get a sense of how devastating this would be, remember that widows were among the most disadvantaged people in the ancient Near East. This woman's son was truly her last hope for survival. She couldn't just get a job and provide for herself. With no husband and no son, she would be confined to a life of begging and easily exploited or abused by anybody who wished to do so. I mean, this is one of the reasons why if you read God's law, there are so many commands to care for the widows in Scripture. And it's something unique about God's law. You don't see in other cultures. His care for the extremely destitute And the fact that we're in Sidon indicates that the widow didn't even have God's laws to protect her, even though it's unlikely in Ahab's time that such laws would be honored. And so the widow's strong reaction in verse 18 is unsurprising. Am I being punished? Is that why you came here, Elijah? Instead of judgment, what she witnesses is the first account in Scripture of somebody being raised from the dead. Elijah takes the boy, prays to God, and the boy is raised back to life. And the widow's final reaction to this miracle is really summarizing. It's a summary heading for the three chunks of scripture we just talked about. She says, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Turn by turn, point by point, we see Elijah's faithfulness to Yahweh. Yahweh is his God. Turn by turn, point by point, we see that God is faithful to all his promises. And it is he who controls the rain, not Baal, whether within Israel or without. And it is he who sustains people and gives life itself. So what's the point? I mean, what's the author showing us here? We see the rise of this great wave of apostasy, this evil king, is contrasted with the rise of a great and faithful man of God. Why? Well, the text shows us one of the ways that God answers apostasy. It shows how God addresses those who turn away from him. God answers apostasy with faithfulness. This is the point of the story. How does God respond to the faithlessness of Israel and its king? Does he wipe them out? I mean, has it finally gone too far? I mean, he'd certainly be justified in doing so. This isn't exactly the first time they've gone astray, and now there's like nothing left to drain out of the pool here. Just take them out. No, no. That's not our God. That's not Yahweh. Our God answers apostasy with faithfulness. It's both God's faithfulness that we see here and Elijah's. The faithless king is confronted by the faithful prophet. And I want to try to emphasize to you what a big deal this is. God answers apostasy with faithfulness. He tries to get everybody back. You see what that says about God and his character? I mean, was God under some obligation to create a nation for himself and free the Israelites? Was God compelled to give them a law and make a covenant with them? Did God owe the Israelites an explanation of what would happen if they turned against him? Did God have to confront Ahab? Of course not. But that's the kind of God he is. He's a God who reveals himself to people. Not because he has to, but because he wants to. Because he wants us. He reveals himself. He gives us his word, his prophets, his own son, his spirit. He disciplines us. He encourages us. Why? What's all this for, this whole project, this whole book? What's it all about? Why bother? But to tell us about himself, to remake us, to restore us to the relationship with him that we were made for. It's what the whole book, this whole Bible is all about that. It's the whole project. I want my people back. I want you back. Does he have to tell us what his commands are? Does he have like some need that's unmet or some fragile ego where he needs to command people what to do and they have to obey him? If they don't, he's all shattered by it and broken up like, oh, man, I must not be God. They're not listening. No. He doesn't have any unmet needs. He's perfect. He's complete. Yet, yet, he reveals himself to us. He tells us what's going on. That's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of God we see in this text today. And just look at how he does it. How does God answer Ahab's apostasy? He does it through faithful people. And in this case, it's Elijah. Faithful people show us the truth. It is through Elijah's faithfulness that God confronts the evil represented by Ahab. Baal doesn't control the rain, I do. It is through Elijah's faithfulness that God provides for the widow. Baal doesn't even provide for the Sidonians, I do. It is through Elijah's faithfulness that God raises her son back to life. Baal doesn't give life, I do. What's the widow's confession? Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. And supremely, we see this same pattern in Jesus. It is through Jesus' faithfulness that we get God's ultimate and final answer to our apostasy. It's God's definitive effort to bring us back. It is through Christ's faithfulness that we find true provision. Bread that will never leave you hungry, water that will never run dry. It is through Christ's faithfulness that we are rescued from death itself. God answers apostasy with faithfulness. Jesus addresses the greatest evil of all. All the sin and evil and apostasy of the whole world, past, present, and future. And God's answer to that evil is the most faithful, perfect man ever, Jesus Christ, God himself in flesh. While we were sinners, while we were apostates, while we were sinners, this is Romans 5, Christ died for us. In the midst of our own apostasy, while we were turned away from God, Christ came. And he didn't come just to show us the way back to God, but to be the way back. It is through Jesus' faithfulness. He lived the life that we were supposed to live. He died the death we were supposed to die. It is through him that we get back to the relationship that we were made for. He provides the way out of our apostasy. So this story shows us something of God's character, how God deals with his people. God answers apostasy with faithfulness, and he uses people. So how do we respond? What do we do with that? If our God is a God who uses faithful people to address apostasy, it stands to reason that if we are faithful people, we will be engaged in this project as well. Now for those of us who call themselves Christians, I mean, is this not a really common story? It's, it's, It's my story. And when I was 24... I was all over the map, right? And I was decidedly opposed to Christianity and God, and I was chasing after whatever idols I set up for myself. And a faithful man named Randy befriended me, confronted me and my apostasy. How many of us have a similar story? God used a faithful person or people to address our apostasy. Maybe it was a friend, pastor, even a stranger, a parent, a sibling. This is how God works. Of course, it's not the only way he works, but it's unbelievably common. So our response as faithful men and women of God is to confront those who have turned away from him. Now, of course, it doesn't need to look as dramatic as we see today, right? But God will use our faithfulness to confront apostasy. And this has to do with the way we speak, how we act, how we treat them, how we treat others. We share the truth with others, and God can use that to bring them back. Now, what gives us the power to do that? I mean, how how do we do that? Now, the short answer is God. Who is our God? Before we can respond to evil and apostasy with faithfulness, we must respond to God's faithfulness. Throughout this text, Elijah responds to God's promises and receives God's faithfulness. Elijah's promised provision from God. He trusts him and he receives it. This hasn't changed today. We are promised everything in Christ freedom from sin and death, acceptance and relationship with a God we long for, whether we admit it or not, and the peace that comes with it all. And all that's required for us is to trust and receive it. And when we receive that, when we make Yahweh our God, everything changes. Right? Because, I mean, if, if comfort is your God, you won't be faithful because you could lose your comfort. If Yahweh is your God, You already have his comfort. And you know the greatest comfort still awaits you in the next life. And you can never lose it. If the approval of other people is your God, you won't be faithful. Because you could lose the approval of others. If Yahweh is your God, you already have all the approval. From the highest order in the universe, God himself accepts you and loves you exactly as you are. There's no need to put up a front or a pretense. He knows everything, every nook and cranny. And he says, I accept you. I love you. You're mine. And you can never lose that. You can't lose that. Elijah responded with faithfulness because Yahweh was his God. Who's ours? Now, there may be some here today who aren't, aren't even sure about They aren't aren't sure about God. They've never turned away from, from, from your sins and turned towards God through accepting Christ as your Savior. And so here, we might respond a little bit differently to the text. Maybe you need to respond to the confrontation we see here today between Elijah and Ahab. Maybe God is confronting your own apostasy today through this message. Bail is no God. He isn't alive. He doesn't provide. Money is no God. It can't provide what you need. Relationships are no God. They can't provide what you need. Comfort is no God. Sex is no God. Power is no God. Your job, your spouse, your children, your status, your education, your country, your car, your bank account, your body, your looks, they are no God. Let God answer this evil, your own idolatry, your own sin, with his faithfulness in Christ Jesus. Trust in his great promise to remake you. Turn to Jesus, worship the God who truly provides, who truly gives life. And then, go out and be faithful to him. Because our God answers apostasy with faithfulness. We're going to see God's faithfulness and Elijah's faithfulness over the next few weeks. We're going to go into chapter 18 next week if you want to read ahead. I'll have the band come up now. Let me close with just one final illustration, and then we can pray. There's a woman named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. And she was as far away from Christianity as you could get an extremely liberal lesbian professor, she despised all things Christian. She says, those who professed the name of Jesus commanded my pity and my wrath. And in 1997, she wrote a scathing article against what she called the unholy trinity of Jesus, patriarchy, and Republicans. And she received so much mail for her article, she said she had to have two separate bins on her desk, one for hate mail and one for letters praising her and saying how she just nailed it in her assessment of Christianity. But one letter out of that pile stuck with her, and she couldn't shake it. It was a letter from a pastor named Ken Smith in Syracuse, New York. And it wasn't hate mail. But it challenged her. And she couldn't shake it from her conscience. And eventually, she started corresponding with this man his wife. They met, they talked, they became friends. He never judged her. He never condemned her. But he also challenged her. And he held to his own beliefs as much as he respected hers. And finally, over years, after much prayer... Despite every prior inclination in her heart to the contrary, she accepted Christ. She turned from her apostasy. God used a person and people to do that. Because our God answers apostasy with faithfulness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you are a God who wants us back so badly, Lord, that you took on flesh and endured hell for our sake to give us new life, to give us hope and a future, to remake us, Lord God. You answered our own turning from you with your faithfulness. Thank you, God. Thank you you are a merciful God, that you love us, that you want us back, even when we've turned from you. So as we respond this morning, Lord, help us, work in our hearts, show us how we need to respond to this great truth that we see in this story of Ahab and Elijah, in the word that you gave us to instruct us and teach us and reprove us and encourage us. We thank you, God, for your word, for this gathering, for this morning. Speak to us now, Holy Spirit.